0: Happy Easter, everyone. He is risen. He is risen indeed, right? That's why we are here this morning. Um, If you are visiting with us, hopefully you filled out one of the uh, cards there, a little white long, slender cards that we've got uh, there in the pew for you. You can uh, just fill that out. If you haven't, we want to welcome you uh, with us this special Easter Sunday. Um, I am Pastor Nate. I'm the, the youth pastor, or if I'm talking to somebody, some business that doesn't want to talk to the youth pastor, I'm the associate pastor. Um, <laughs> Me and Mark Gentry got to deal with that on, thir- was it Thursday? Yeah. I, I became the associate pastor for a short amount of time. Anyway, um, our senior pastor, Jeremy Varner, uh, here's the Varners. Uh, Jeremy's brother got married yesterday, so here's their family picture, all dressed up and ready for, uh, for the, the wedding uh, yesterday. So he is, he is out of town with his family. Uh, he texted me bright and early this morning. Um, he was at a, a sunrise service there in Georgia He's uh, letting us know that he's praying for us, praying for you guys. He misses his church family here, um, but uh, we, we can be praying for them as they, they have a little family vacation there and time with their family. Of course, uh, we were told, we were discussing the fact that if you're going to have a sunrise service, you've got to make it biblical, which means all the ladies have to go first, and if it's good enough, they'll come back, tell the men, and the men will come, right? Um, that's, that's a, a biblical uh, sunrise service there that. No, we just have breakfast because we like to eat a lot around here. Um, anyway, you can open your Bibles this morning to John chapter 11. John chapter 11, this is a little bit different passage than you would normally go to on an Easter Sunday morning. Uh, and also our, our title of the sermon this morning, glory to God in the highest. Wait a second. Is that the wrong holiday? Glory to Christmas. What? No, this is this is uh, really a theme that we're going to be looking at. Glory to God in the highest. Right? We sing that. We see, you know, the angels sang that at Christmas, announcing our Savior's birth, and we celebrate that. And we have the little kids come up, dressed like angels with a little halo, and they sing, you know. Um, but really, we see that, and I was glad to see in our songs this morning it mentioned multiple times the glory of God, uh, getting to be able to see that not just at At Christmas time, right, um, where we sing this, where the angels sang this, but here in the the resurrection, um, we see the glory of God so clearly. So if you're in the book of John, we're actually going to be looking at um, one of the greatest miracles that Jesus performed uh, while he was on earth, leading up to his crucifixion and then resurrection. Uh, we get to see here in John chapter 11, the, the death and then resurrection of Lazarus. Uh, and we're going to go through and I'll try and move pretty quickly um, because uh, as, as many of you know, I like to eat a lot. Uh, that's why I run is so I can eat more. Okay. Um, it's not because I, you know, just want to work out and be healthy and stuff. No, I just like to eat cinnamon rolls. So um, I have to eat every two hours. I'm kind of like a baby. Uh, so we got to get through this uh, so that we can get home to our Easter meal. Because uh, we just had breakfast all together. Um, but we're going to look at this in, in John chapter 11. Look at, at how this kind of sets the stage leading up to Jesus' resurrection. So if you've got your Bibles, turn there, John chapter 11. Uh, and I'm going to read this first section. We're actually going to see how Jesus interacts with three different groups of people. So let's look at the first one here at the beginning of that chapter. John 11 verse 1 it says, Now a certain man was ill. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus, and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, "'Let us go to Judea again.' The disciples said to him, "'Rabbi, the Jews are now seeking to stone you, and are are you going there again?' Jesus answered, "'Are there not twelve hours in the day?' Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us go, that we may die with him. So here, John, as he's writing this, he's kind of setting the stage a little bit. Uh, and we see Jesus dealing with the disciples, and and as we go through this chapter, we're going to see these three different people. So, so the first set of people Jesus is dealing with is dis- the disciples, and the point he's trying to get across to them is that the resurrection glorifies God. We saw that very clearly here. He said, "I'm glad this happened. It was for the glory of God." But we're gonna we gotta kind of gotta set the stage to to understand this a little bit. Uh, so we got a little map here. Ooh, ooh we freaking out. Okay. So here is a map, you know, very basic map, but you see there's Judea. Okay. This is Israel, Judea in the South. You've got Galilee in the North. You see the the Dead Sea and this little river running uh, really into the Dead Sea from the North is um, the Jordan River. And Jesus was, we know from from reading leading up to this, Jesus was out and he had been doing his ministry in Galilee. And then he'd go down in Judea to Judea, and, and he would do different things and miracles and teachings. And um, if, if you didn't know, okay, he kind of had ticked some people off. Uh, the Pharisees, which was a, a, a kind of a denomination of J- Judaism, if you want to put it that way, uh, they kind of controlled the synagogues and the countryside and all of that. They kind of had that power there. And so when he was out preaching, he kind of made them mad because he was taking some of their power. He was, he was kind of taking their political authority. People were following him. So the Pharisees didn't like him. Then Jesus goes down into Jerusalem and he did this multiple times for the different, um, the different ceremonies and the different uh, holidays he would go to Jerusalem for. And uh, he had kind of ticked off the Sadducees, which would be another denomination because they controlled Jerusalem and the temple and the temple worship. And you know, when he, he cleared out the temple and when he did different things that um, he really made some enemies there. So because all of these people were mad at him, these two denominations that would normally fight kind of come together and they're trying to get Jesus. So Jesus goes across the Jordan River to this little, I don't know if you can see my little laser pointer here. We believe he's in this area kind of of Bethabarbra, okay? So just on the east side of the Jordan. And he's out of the political realm that the religious leaders in, in Israel would have control of. So he was safe. That's why here we see that the, um, the disciples are a little concerned when he's getting ready to go back into Bethany. Now, Bethany, you see, and the Bible tells us right there, it's two miles from Jerusalem. It's very close. There's a nice little arrow pointing to it, very close to Jerusalem. And this is where Jesus' friends are, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And, and we kind of can deduce from some of this. It's about a day's journey to get to where Jesus is uh, on the other side of the Jordan River. So when you're kind of reading through this and you, you, if you study this, you'll see kind of some conflicting things. I know, shocker, right? Um, but it takes about a day's journey, right, on foot to get from Bethany to where Jesus was on the other side of the Jordan. So Lazarus gets sick, Mary and Martha send a messenger, it takes him a day to get to Jesus and probably shortly after he left, Lazarus dies. So the messenger doesn't know that when he gets to Jesus and he just says he's sick Jesus stays two more days, and then it takes him a day to get back to Bethany, which would, as we read later, it shows that he's been dead four days by the time Jesus gets there. So this is kind of the the scene that we're seeing. But in that time, Jesus is is waiting, and it, it says something very interesting. It says that Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and because he loved them, he stayed longer because he loved them, he didn't immediately go right away, right? Kind of seems contrary. But the thing is, is that Jesus' focus was on the glory of God. That's what his focus was on. As we read through here, he makes very clear to his disciples, right? This illness will not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the son of God can be glorified through it. That's his focus. He wants to glorify God. He doesn't get caught up in the firestorm of, of the urgent, right? If you read any um, secular uh, productivity or, you know, books, that type of thing, these business books, and they, they try and tell you these things, right? You know, focus on things that are important, not the people that, that have come in and things that are urgent. And, and it's this idea you, you'll read sometimes, the difference between a compass and a clock, right? Which one do you use to tell where you're going? A compass, Right? You don't look at your watch unless you're a Boy Scout and you can use like a stick and of course we got a digital watch so that's not gonna help me any. Um, Did you guys know that? You can use a shadow from the sun and tell which direction's north. Is this new to everybody? Okay, (laughs) I was not a Boy Scout so I can't actually teach you how to do it. I just know that it can be done. Um, You use a compass, right? To figure out where you're going. That's your direction. You use a compass. You don't use a clock. A clock tells you how much time you have to get there. Jesus knew these things But he used his compass, right, focusing on the glory of God to tell him where he was going and what he was going to do. Uh, When we were going through, uh, right now in in youth group, we're going through end times events. And we had a lesson on the rapture. And we were teaching the the teenagers, right, live with no regrets. A little refresher for my teenagers, right? Live with no regrets. And the way you can do that is by focusing on what God wants you to do. And making your decisions based on that, right? This is what Jesus did. He was focused on glorifying God, making much of God. One of the verses we went to with the teenagers is in Titus chapter 2, verse 11. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting. For our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. If we have that as our true north, our compass telling us what we're supposed to be doing, what, what, how we can make decisions of what's important in our lives, the glory of God focusing on God and His eventual coming, that will help make a lot of decisions for us. That will help us live with no regrets. And this is what Jesus did. Now, we kind of need to understand, what does this mean? What does it mean to glorify God? We, we sing it, we talk about it in our churches, but we don't define it um, very much. But here, here actually is the, the definition here. So glory, when we say the glory of God, it's the manifest presentation of God's infinite and majestic nature. That's what glory means. So glory to God in the highest, right? It's the presentation of God's infinite and majestic nature. Who God is. We actually get to see it. Even just a a little glimpse from our human perspective, we get to see the glory of God. So if we're going to glorify God, or if God is going to be glorified, that means we're going to positively acknowledge or recognize His character, nature, or attributes. So let's think about this for a second. If we're going to positively acknowledge, God is going to be acknowledged for His character, nature, or attributes. Think about how that plays out in the resurrection. And you can actually see throughout all of John, the book of John, um, that's one of the main themes that John's getting across. We actually sang this this morning. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So if you think about Lazarus, right? Okay, spoiler alert if you haven't heard this story before. Lazarus rises from the dead. Jesus calls him out of the tomb. We'll get to that in a second. But when he does that, when Lazarus is raised from the dead, God is glorified. And God is glorified this is killing me today. We've been having lots of technical difficulties this morning. Um, when, when Lazarus is, is resurrected, Lazarus' resurrection glorifies God by showing us the def- divine power and nature of Jesus, the Son of God, bringing life by his words. Again, you've got the reference up there in John 1, right? Where, where it says, The Word by him were all things created. Jesus spoke everything into existence. And it was through him that we have life. So that's God, Jesus, right? Second person of the Trinity, in the beginning, giving life to everything that has life. And then here we have Jesus, the Son of God on earth, physically giving life to Lazarus, calling him out of the tomb. And he's just displaying that. And people acknowledge it and recognize it. So think about Jesus' resurrection it glorifies God by proving the satisfaction of God's judgment on sin and death and clearly declaring Jesus deity and power. This is a big point, the resurrection of Jesus. This is really what it's all about. If you go to 1 Corinthians 15, Paul even says that without the resurrection, our faith is in vain right? It's useless. What we're doing here, if we're coming here to church and we're having our nice little breakfast and we're coming and we're singing songs and all that, if Christ is not raised, it's useless. And when we read through, especially at the end of the gospels and through Acts, and we see the apostles preaching the gospel, they hammer on the resurrection because that's what proves that we have hope in the gospel. Actually at Pentecost, right? 50 days after all of this happened at the the crucifixion and resurrection, we have Peter preaching, and one of the things he says here is, "...let us all, house of Israel, therefore know for certain that God has made him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified." Because of the resurrection, we know this. Paul in Romans actually says this in Romans 1, "...concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh." And was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So we see that right there makes it clear. His resurrection declares He's God. He's our Savior. We can, we can trust in His work on the cross because He, he rose from the dead. right? Uh, one... Uh, Kind of poet put it this way, that uh, Christ wrote the check with his death on the cross, and his resurrection proved that the check cleared, right? Those of you that still write checks sometimes, okay? Uh, You you can write a check. I could write you a check for a million dollars and hand it to you. Uh, You shouldn't put any faith in that, because there's not a million dollars in my bank account. But if I could do that, if I could just walk up and write a check for however much I wanted, and it would clear the bank... That'd be awesome, right? But that's what Jesus did. He was on the cross. He died. He said, it is finished. And we know that that's true because he rose three days later, Easter Sunday morning, that check cleared. And we can, we can bank on it. So that's glorifying God, right? It's, it's displaying who he is. And people can acknowledge who God is. They, they recognize that. But see, we've got to take it a step further, not just mentally recognizing. But we actually have to take the next step and put our faith and trust in that. Not just a mental assent, but putting our faith in it. So we, when we go into this next section in John, right, he's dealing with the disciples and he kind of turns and he starts dealing with the sisters, okay, Mary and Martha. And he, he makes the point to them that the resurrection actually changes us. It glorifies God, but then it changes us. Let's keep reading. Okay, you're in, John. We'll pick back up verse 17. Verse 17 says, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the son of God, who is coming into the world. So this is a, another section Jesus has dealt with his disciples. He's, he's starting to deal with the sisters. And we only read one, the, the, his interaction with, with Martha. But to kind of, again, understand some of this, we need to understand uh, burial practices in the first century in, in Israel with the, the Jews. Okay? Um, they didn't cremate people. Um, they, they, they didn't bury them in the ground, uh, especially around Jerusalem. What they did is they, they actually had caves. Okay? So this is a nice this is a drawing okay, of... I did not draw it, uh, a drawing of kind of what it would look like. And they would, uh, families would, would be buried together. And so they'd, they'd have a cave of some type and they'd go in and they'd have a, a little shelf or bed where they would put the, the body. And they would do it very quickly, okay? None of this hanging around and having a funeral and everybody coming by and seeing. You know, no, they didn't do any of that. They'd wrap them up and put them in there, put some spices on it. Um, But it wasn't a full-on like embalming like the the Egyptians would do. Uh, They would just wrap them up and place them on this shelf. And then a year later, they would come back in and collect the bones that were left after the body had decayed and put them in these boxes. You can see the boxes kind of all around. So it would be a family. They'd make these little cubby holes. And depending on how rich you were, you had a either a really fancy box or just a plain old wooden box, right? Um, But they'd put the bones in the box kind of carve your name in the side and shove it in this cubby hole. So you see here, you know, you've got four other family members, it looks like, buried in this tomb with the new freshly uh, dead person uh, up on the shelf. Uh, And this is kind of what it would look like. So when we read about Jesus, right, it was a brand new tomb, Okay? There was nobody else in there at that point. There weren't any other family members that were put in the boxes or anything. It was a brand new one. Nobody had been in there with Jesus. With Lazarus, it doesn't tell us, right? But he's, he's buried very quickly. And then this mourning process of multiple days is, is taking place. And so Martha, we see her coming out to meet Jesus, probably outside of their village. By the time she hears he's on his way, he's close, somebody's seen him. So she runs out to meet him, right? And this is kind of normal for her personality type. She was always the busy one, right? We've read this in other places where, you know, Martha is serving and Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus. So Martha, the active one, comes out. And it's funny, as you read through, it's it's apparent that her and Mary had been talking to each other because later we'll read that Mary says the exact same thing that Martha said. So Martha comes out by herself and she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And it's it's got this kind of tone of, you know, not really a doubt, but a questioning. Because she then goes on and says, she reaffirms her faith. She says, I know whatever you ask, God will give you. And it's interesting that she has never told Jesus what to do, right? She doesn't say, Jesus, come heal my brother, she just says, Jesus, he's sick. She doesn't say, Jesus, go raise him from the dead. You can do that. She's not even asking. And as we read later, she's not even thinking that that's a possibility in her mind. But she's just pouring her heart out to Jesus saying, Jesus, if you had been here, if you had done something, I know you could have done this. And so there's some questions there. And when Jesus tells her, hey, your brother's going to rise again, Literally saying, in a couple minutes, I'm going to walk to his tomb and he's going to be alive and walk out, right? She's not thinking that. He says, your brother's going to rise again. And look at her response in verse 24. She says, I know he will rise again when? In the resurrection on the last day. Her focus was in the future. Her focus was thinking, yes, in the resurrection, on the last day, my brother will rise again. I'll get to see him again. And that's, that's an awesome truth that we see throughout Scripture, right? And we, we, we preach that at our funerals and, and we know that is awesome that one day our, our loved ones that are gone, they're in heaven, we're going to see them one day. And that's awesome. But sometimes our focus is too much on the future because where was Jesus' focus? His focus was on the present. She said, yeah, on the last day, he'll rise. Jesus' focus was on the present. And this is consistent throughout the book of John. Again, Jesus' focus is on the present. If we look in John chapter 3, right, the famous passage where Nicodemus comes to him at night and we pick up in John 3, 16, it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he's not believed in the name of the Son of God. See here you see it, present tense. You believe, you're not condemned. Present tense. He's looking at right now. And if that's not enough, he goes on. If you skip down to to verse 36, it says this. Whoever believes in the Son has, present tense, eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains, present tense, on him. So if you've not accepted Christ as your Savior right now, the wrath of God is on you. Right? Right? And if you choose not to accept Christ as your Savior, it remains on you. But what does it say? If you believe, you have eternal life. This person believes and they have eternal life. And too often, especially some of our, our older translations, the English translations, it actually says everlasting life. And when we talk about this, that's what we think, right? Eternal life, everlasting, lasting forever. But when you look at that word, the biblical Greek word, for eternal, doesn't just mean living forever, right? But it carries this idea of the utmost, the highest possible. So when we say that you have eternal life, we're not just saying you're going to live forever, but you're going to have the best life possible. Of course, the the reverse of that is also true. The Bible uses the same word when it talks about hell, eternal death. So it's not just the the idea of living forever and having the best life. The reverse of that is if you don't trust Christ as your savior, you will die forever in the worst possible way in hell. So when we think of eternal life, uh, we think of abundant life, right? We have that abundant life that is unending, right? And we can say that real easy, right? Abundant life, your best life now, right? Uh, Come next week and you can hear, watch a video about some of these uh, perversions of the gospel where people want to focus on, oh yeah, your life is going to be great. Well, yeah, our life is going to be great when we accept Christ as Savior. But sometimes our definition of great or abundant life is a little different than God's. We see in, in John 10, Jesus says, the thief, referring to Satan, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now, this doesn't mean that nothing bad is going to happen, obviously. I mean, Lazarus kind of died. So that's not really a fun thing to go through, so I've been told. Um, But when we focus on God, right? We've got our true north. He's giving us that abundant life that starts right now and it lasts for forever. This verse here, right? The the central verse of this whole passage. Jesus' great declaration, right? This is, I think, the the fifth of his I am statements in John, right? I am the resurrection and the life. He kind of covers both of these ideas, right? The, The physical side, where we one day will be with Jesus forever and we're never going to die. And that idea that if, if we do physically die, we've got that hope in the future of the resurrection and being with Him forever in glorified bodies just like His. But then it covers the spiritual side of we've got that forever relationship with God where we can trust Him Every step of the way. And we know that as a good father, he's giving us these wonderful gifts that we don't deserve. Even the trials that come in our life, right? That's why in James it says, count it all joy when you come into various trials and temptations. Even those things that from a human perspective we're tempted to say are bad things are gifts from God in our life. So we get to have that abundant life forever. Life with Jesus starts now, guys. It's not just a future thing. It's not just a fire insurance I can put in my back pocket and I know, well, if I die, I'm going to heaven. No, if you trust Christ as your Savior, you have eternal life right now, and it lasts forever. Jesus says it this way in um, John five twenty four. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life he does not come into judgment but has passed from death into life you've made that you've crossed over right in the good way from death into life but Jesus asks Mary this question after he makes that statement he's a resurrection in the life and he looks at her and he says do you believe do you believe And that's really a question we need to ask ourselves right now. Do we believe that? Do you believe that? Because that's what it's about. We we hear these stories about Christ and how he performed these miracles. And we see here in a second, we're going to read where he raised Lazarus from the dead. And we know we're here celebrating Easter, how Jesus himself rose from the dead And again, we can acknowledge that, but do we believe it? Have we put our faith and trust in Christ alone to save us? Are we still trying to heap up our good works on the side and think that that's going to make us good enough to get to heaven? We have to believe, and that is how we pass from death into life. Just believe. So here Jesus has has talked to his disciples. He's talked to Martha. And these are kind of private conversations with, with his closest friends. He's teaching his disciples and focusing them on the glory of God. He's talking to Mary, getting her eyes off of the future and onto the present of what he wants to do in her life. How the resurrection changes us, gives us that relationship with God. And then he kind of turns from that private teaching into the public demonstration. And we see him turn to the people. And it shows us how the resurrection convinces others. The resurrection convinces others. Let's keep reading here and finish out this story in John 11. We're going to pick back up in verse 28. It says, When he had said this, she went... saying to him, the same thing her sister says, Lord, if you had not been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him? the glory of God. There's that theme again. So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So here's the thing. If we think of this idea, the resurrection convinces others. If we're going to take the gospel to other people, it's actually going to start with us. It's going to start with us. Um, there's a, two different times in this passage that it says Jesus was greatly moved. Uh, and that's kind of a really tame way to put it, okay? Uh, here's the, the Greek word. I've got to look at it here, okay? It says, embrimomai. Uh, Im, I've got a little computer program I press and listen to try and figure out how to say it. I'mbrimami, okay, this is a compound word. It's got two words, meaning in and to snort with anger. The Greek is so very colorful, right, okay? <laughs> to snort with anger, but on the inside, okay? So think about this. Yeah, you hold the snort in. I look at the confused look on your face, okay? Think about this. Have you guys ever been like really ticked off at something, but you held it inside? Yeah, you have been. Okay, good. I'm glad I'm not the only one. Okay. You get really ticked off at something, but it just eats you up inside. Okay. This is Jesus. Okay. We see these emotions coming through. It is awesome when you read through the gospels and, and really the whole Bible and you see God's emotions or in the gospels, Jesus emotions just come out um, because he's, he's very emotional. Okay, uh, So that's okay. Emotions, emotions are great. God created emotions. He has emotions. Uh, and we see this. Jesus is deeply moved, right? He's ticked off on the inside, but it, it actually motivates him to action, right? For, again, what was his, his main motive? The glory of God, okay? He wasn't ticked off for himself. He wasn't mad because someone had offended him. No, he was mad Because of these things that had happened, and they weren't bringing glory to God. We see there's a couple different things. There's there's actually three different emotions. One, he was moved, that's this word, he snorted with anger, by his friend's sorrow. He saw how, how sad they were, and it made him upset. It made him upset. Then it says he wept, right? The shortest verse in the English Bible, right? Jesus wept. He wept at his friend's graveside. And then it says again that he was moved when he saw the effects of sin and death. All these people around mourning and sad because of the effects of sin, the curse. But here's the thing is that Jesus' emotions led to action. This passage that we use a lot in um, uh, missions conferences, right? In Matthew, Matthew nine thirty-six, it says, When he saw the crowds... He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now this here, we see Jesus had compassion. Again, this is another one of his emotions. Um, this is a different word. It's not the snorting with anger. Uh, but this one this is another fun one. I taught it to our teenagers. Hopefully parents, they went home and told you because we practiced it, okay? It's splunk noise okay? It's fun to say like 16 times over and over again. Um, but it, it's that deep feeling in the pity of your stomach, right? When you see something that's not right, it actually means, you know, a pain in your spleen. That's the way the Greek word actually means. Okay. Uh, but, but he had compassion on these people. When he saw the sin and the destruction of sin and death at the graveside of his friend and all these people weeping, he was moved and he just, just had had enough, right? This is why Jesus came. It was because of the effects of sin and death. And he was going to fix that by his death on the cross, But here he had the opportunity to do something about it right here and glorify God with this situation with Lazarus. So it starts with us, right? If we are going to share the gospel with our friends, with our family members, with our coworkers, whatever it is, we've got to get that feeling and be deeply moved. We've got to have that, in some ways, emotional response that really gets into us and we get fed up with the effects of sin in our world. And the solution is the gospel. So we're going to take that to people. It starts with us getting motivated to action. But it focuses on God, right? Jesus prayed as the very first thing he did, right? He had come. He, he was crying because he was upset. He was moved. But then he stands around and he prays to God. And he, he makes it very clear, right? God, thank you for hearing me, he says, He says, I know you heard me, but I'm I'm praying this for the people around so that they can know that you're the one behind all of this. When we go out, we need to be focused on the glory of God. When we're sharing the gospel with people, they're going to try and twist and turn and do all of these things and bring up random issues that have nothing to do with anything. right? Uh, and, And Sadly, sometimes our apologetics Jeremy and I have had this conversation a couple of times. Our our apologetics, right, defending our faith, gets caught on secondary issues. And people will constantly try and drag in other issues of, oh, well, what about this? Well, what about that? And uh, supposed contradictions in the Bible and things like that. Hey, give them answers. That's important. But you've got to circle back around and focus on God. You've got to focus on the gospel because that's what it's about. And here Jesus, he was getting ready to do his most convincing miracle. And the first thing he did was point people to who was going to actually do this miracle. It was God. God was the one. So he was, he was focused on them. He was focused on God. This is for the glory of God. And then it delivers on substance. This is the awesome part of this whole passage. He's not just talking, right? He's not just saying, hey, I'm the resurrection and the life. You'll be able to be with me one day. Hey, but you have life, you have a relationship with Jesus right now. No, the miracle actually happened, guys. That's the best part of all of this. Is the miracle actually happened. He calls in and says, Lazarus, come out. And it's funny because you you can read this, and and it depends who you're reading about, uh, who this quote is attributed to. But I saw it as Augustine, right? One of the the early Christians, uh, Christian leaders, he once remarked that if Jesus had not said Lazarus' name, that everyone in the graveyard would have come out. I mean, think about it. He's the one that can give life, and he created everything, and if he just says, hey, come out, and then emptied the graveyard, boom, there's everybody. It could have happened, right? Um, that's what's going to happen at the rapture. But he said, hey, Lazarus, come out. Some other writers have, have remarked that You know, Lazarus comes out, but they're wrapped in these grave clothes. And it even says here, right? His hands and his feet were bound. So, what did he like float out? Because he, how is he going to walk? If anything, he like hopped, you know? Um, When I was in college, we, you know, portrayed this as part of an Easter musical that we did. And, um, you know, between trying to get the guys acting, because they had these big foam rocks. And they would just, like, throw them. We're like, guys, you know, they're they're rocks. They're heavy. you got to act, okay? But then this guy had to hop out, you know, hop out on stage. And he fell over once, and it was a little funny. Thankfully, it was only in practice. (laughs) But think about this, okay? Lazarus, his name is called. He comes back to life after four days in the tomb. And this is a big deal to the Jews because they had this weird belief that, like, if someone died, their spirit, like, hovered over the body, And then after three days, it would leave and go go to heaven. Or Abraham's bosom is what they would call it. you know. And within three days, it potentially could come back and the person would come back alive. Well, Jesus made sure he's gone four days so that everybody knows for sure this is a miracle. This is Jesus calling him back to life. And it's awesome. But here's the thing is that people believed. You read on in verse 45, it says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. And if you read into uh, chapter 12, you actually see that the religious leaders, all of these people, right? You're two miles from Jerusalem. Everybody knows what happened to Lazarus. People believed because Lazarus is alive. They can go see him, meet him, talk to him, shake his hand. They know he's alive. So people were believing in Jesus. So the religious leaders start to plot to kill Jesus. They also start to plot to kill Lazarus because so many people were believing in this miracle. So Jesus delivers on that substance, the substance of the gospel. And when we share the gospel, we need to deliver on the substance, right? Uh, we were actually at a, an egg hunt yesterday. Uh, and anytime you're at these big events where there's thousands of people and somebody gets up and they start talking, I always have really low expectations of what's going to happen as far as a gospel presentation. I was very pleasantly surprised there was a great gospel presentation focusing on the gospel, Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead, and the invitation to believe. And that's what we got to do. If we don't do that, if we don't share that substance It's not worth anything. Um, It's been said by some, right? um, Share the gospel every day, but use words if necessary. I don't know who started that, but that's kind of dumb. Sorry. Um, Because any place in the Bible, it tells us you need to use words, right? How shall they call on him of whom they've not believed? How shall they believe on him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without... Someone preaching. Now, that doesn't mean somebody standing up in front preaching, but somebody literally sharing the gospel with words. That's what it's about. We've got to deliver on substance. And if you see in 1 Corinthians 15, I alluded to this earlier. This is what Paul says. Talking to the Corinthians, this is verse 3. It says, "...for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures." And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. So he makes clear here, the gospel is the most important thing, guys. The gospel is the most important thing. So what's the gospel? He has it right here. Two points. Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead. Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead. He makes it clear, okay? Christ died. And it says in this passage, it was a fulfillment of scriptures. It was prophesied that he would die for our sins. This is what the Bible says. You want proof that he died? Okay, we have proof. He was buried, right? You don't bury somebody alive. I remember when I was a teenager, I watched this episode of CSI and they had somebody buried alive. Freaked me out for a couple of weeks. Could not stand it. I couldn't, like, lay still, okay? You don't bury a live person. Jesus died, and we know that. The Bible tells us, and we have proof. He was buried. You know what? He rose from the dead. He was raised. The Scripture foretold that, right? In Psalms, it says that he would not allow his his loved one to see corruption, we know that Jesus was going to rise from the dead. He was telling his disciples over and over, "Hey, I'm going to rise, I'm coming back, right? Destroy this temple in three days and I'll or destroy this temple and I'll raise it in three days," He said to the Pharisees, and they didn't understand what he was talking about. And you want proof? All right. People saw him. Over 500 people at one time, and when Paul was writing, most of those were still alive, and you could go talk to them. That's proof. You want more proof? OK? Uh, a ghost doesn't eat your lunch. So what it says in Luke, when Jesus shows up to his disciples and they say, it's a ghost. And he eats, right? He says to them, does a, does a spirit, does a ghost have flesh and a body like I have? And they were able to touch him and feel him and he ate lunch with them, right? A ghost doesn't eat your lunch. So no matter what we're doing, we've got to come back to the gospel, Christ died for our sins. It's because of our sins that Christ had to come and die on the cross. But then he rose from the dead. That check cleared, guys. And we can praise him because we know we can have life, not just future life, but life right now, that relationship with him. And no matter what we're doing, we got to come back to the scriptures, come back to the gospel, and know what the gospel is. Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. And all of this is for His glory, right? Glory to God in the highest. Why? Not because He came as a baby, but because of why He came as a baby. He died for our sins, and He rose from the dead. So a couple of questions as we close. Jesus' focus was on the glory of God. And when we're changed, and have that abundant life, we can get motivated and share that with other people. So the first question, I already asked it. Do you believe? Do you believe Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead? And I'm not talking about just a, a mental assent, an acknowledgement. Because one day when Jesus comes again, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. They'll acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. But at that point... If you haven't trusted Christ as your Savior, it's too late. Do you believe? Have you made that decision to accept Christ as your Savior? And you have that relationship with Him, that abundant life relationship with Jesus. My next question, if you do believe, are you letting the gospel change you today? Are you letting it change you today? Jesus is coming for us. We will have a home in heaven, live with Him forever. All of that is true, and all of that is awesome. But the gospel is about today, right? We have life, a relationship with Him today. And the third question, are you revolving your life around the glorious gospel of Christ? Is that your true north? When you make decisions, am I going to take this job? Am I going to go to this school? Am I going to do this activity? Is our family going to do X, Y, Z? How am I going to spend my money? What am I going to do? Is that your true north on your compass, the glorious gospel of Christ? Or has something else taken the place? We need to ask ourselves these questions. Because that's really what what Jesus was getting at as he's going through here, proclaiming this, teaching the disciples, teaching Mary and Martha, and showing the people around glory to God in the highest. That's what our whole life should be about. Let's pray. God, I just thank you so much for this passage. I thank you so much for your word and that we can look in it and see what you've done to prove you are God. And you sent your son to save us. God, I thank you for Easter and that fact that we have new life in you. And I just pray that if there's anybody in here tonight, this morning, that uh, has not made that decision. When I ask that question, do you believe that they don't know how to answer? Or they answered no. God, I pray that you'd work in their hearts. I pray that you would just make clear to them. Christ died for their sins. and You rose from the dead so that they can have new life in you. God, I just want to praise you for everything. I want to praise you for the glorious gospel. I want to praise you for the miracles that you performed to prove who you are and glorify yourself here on earth in front of us. God, thank you for Easter and thank you for everyone here that can celebrate with us together as a a church family. God, I just pray as we go throughout the rest of today uh, that you'd be glorified by our lives, the things we say and do and the way we worship, not just here in a church sanctuary, but throughout our lives, in our homes, and in the world. God, we pray these things in your name. Amen.